0: When I grew up, I manufactured guilt and shame like McDonald's cooks up french fries. I don't know if it's my birth order, I don't know if it's a church I grew up in, but I just always thought I was gonna get in trouble, that I was always doing something wrong, that, that always just around the corner, everything was going to cave in. So I lived with a lot of fear and guilt. I remember just being a young boy, I mean, single digits, We traveled out to my grandparents who lived in Muleshoe, Texas. They had a small house and grandpa had this cuckoo clock that fascinated me. Never seen one before. And while the other kids were playing, I'm right there. I wanna see the cuckoo come out. And I finally saw it. And of course, as a young boy, I've got to touch it. And the clock stopped. And I was terrified. Oh no, I broke Grandpa's cuckoo clock, and now he's gonna break me. I, I was expecting to get in so much trouble. So I found refuge in a small house in the one little bathroom they had. And even though I was young, I knew the Lord at that time, and I pleaded before God God, would you please heal Grandpa's cuckoo clock? I've seen you do all these miracles in the New Testament and the Old Testament. You parted the Red Seas. You said if I would have faith as a mustard seed, you would do greater things than these. All I'm asking is that you heal Grandpa's cuckoo clock. I'm in so much trouble, please. I didn't mean to do it. Heal Grandpa's cuckoo clock. I came out of the bathroom. How many think Grandpa's cuckoo clock was healed? It's complicated. We'll get the answer in about 25 minutes. I carried that same guilt even through my teens and into college, when I went to college, took another real turn for the Lord, really wanted to be right with Him. And one of the speakers just before we left for Christmas break talked about how you need to make amends and you need to make things right. I remembered in fifth grade, I had a wonderful teacher, was a godly Christian man, and I was using the pencil sharpener and I broke it. It's not like I hit it or I was angry, just one of those things, but I just assumed that was five years of detention and I was gonna get in so much trouble. I just went to my seat and hoped nobody saw it, but then somebody mentioned it and I'm like, oh, Why aren't the, the, the pencil sharpeners broke, who broke the pencil? Day, hey, did you know the pencil sharpener? I just, everything I could just to deflect the blame off me and I carried guilt. So I thought to get right with the Lord, I had to call up my fifth grade teacher and I found his phone number. Unfortunately, he didn't answer because <laughs> I really liked the guy. I'm sure he would've thought, wait, wait, you're in college and you felt guilty about accidentally breaking a pencil sharpener in fifth grade? Can I get you the name of a counselor? I mean, do you need some help? I'm just kind of worried about you. And I, and I say that just to let you know, I know guilt. I've felt shame, how it wraps its arms around you, how it destroys peace and joy, how it can haunt you years after the fact. Because imagine, if I can feel guilt and shame over two things, then most people here would say, that you don't need to feel guilt, you don't need to feel shame over that. Imagine, The guilt and shame I must carry over things that are justifiably evil and wicked and wrong, sins that everybody here would agree. Yeah, Gary, that was not your best day. I don't know what your relationship with guilt and shame is. Maybe some of you should be feeling guilt. You're not. Maybe others, it's this weight. It's this cloud over your life. But the words we're gonna look at in 1 John chapter two today have been so freeing for me. I had the whole chapter to deal with, I'm in chapter two, and I couldn't get past the first verse because it is so powerful and so pertinent to my needs, I believe to everyone. I'm eager to get into it now. 1 John chapter two, verse one, John says this, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but." If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He begins with this phrase, my dear children. John was known as the apostle of love. He demonstrated it throughout his life. Clement of Alexandria was born 50 years after John had died. So when he was there, there were people that still remember John. There were a lot of stories that weren't in the Bible about what the apostles did. And one was John, after he was released from the island of Patmos, he'd been exiled there. It's where he wrote the book of Revelation. He got out and he spent the last remaining years of his life going around, building leadership, appointing bishops, helping people grow, really wanting to establish the church of Christ. He was the last living disciple who had been one of the 12. And in one such village, he saw this young man and he felt so much promise. The young man looked like he had what it could take to really have a powerful ministry. And he trained him up and he encouraged him. And he gave a charge to the bishop before he left. This young man is important to me. I want you to keep training him. I want you to keep growing him. I want you to keep teaching him. He's got an important role in the church in this area. And so the bishop did. I mean, he had the charge from John. He trained him, he taught him. And the young man grew and he became powerful in ministry and he had such a strong thing that the bishop did what frankly a lot, a lot of parents do. All right, he's good, he's got a good start. And, and he took his foot off the gas pedal. Unfortunately, the young man's friends didn't take their feet off the gas pedal. And they began to gradually lure him away until entertainment became more fascinating to him than the things of the Lord. But then of course, entertainment gets boring. So they started to be mean to people and then that gets boring Until they started to become violent. I don't know if you've seen this. I have in so many places where somebody has tasted the things of God. They know God's word. And when they step away, it's not like they take one step. It's like they travel halfway around the world and they become as bad and evil as they once were good and worshipful. He literally became a warlord. He took over a section of the hill just outside the village. And if anybody went by there, they were too afraid that they would be robbed. Sometimes they would be murdered. So when John came back to the village, he sought out the bishop. And the first thing he did, he asked about the young man Bishop's terrified. He said, well, John, he's dead. He's dead. How did he die? He said, well, he's dead to God. And he explained what had happened. John ripped his clothes. He started slapping his face. I know it seems weird, but that's how they had a lament back then. And he said, Where is he? Bring me a horse. The, the bishop's horrified. John, he will kill you. You're the last disciple, you cannot go. He said, get me the horse, and they did. And he took off. And as soon as he got to the warlord's area, of course, the sentry arrested him. And the sentry was shocked, because John wasn't afraid. There was no fear. He said, I came to be captured by you. Take me to your captain, So the sentry did. The warlord saw John, this old man from afar off, and he drew his sword. He would show these town people what will happen to them when they dare challenge him. But when he got closer, he saw the face of John, the last disciple of Jesus. He did something his soldiers had never seen him do, not once. He dropped his sword and turned around, run. John defined the laws of physics and age, captured him, and they caught his arm. He spun him around, and this is what John said Why, my son, dost thou flee from me, thy father, unarmed, old? Son, pity me, fear not, thou hast still hope of life. I will give account to Christ for thee if need be. I will willingly endure thy death as the Lord did endure death for us. For thee, I will surrender my life. Stand, believe, Christ hath sent me." In the face of this grace and mercy, the warlord fell to his knees and wept. And John brought him back to the Lord and he trained him and he taught him for weeks. That's how the early church knew him. They remembered him. When he wrote these letters, he was a bishop who was an overseer of souls in the best sense of the term. He wasn't a fiery fundamentalist denouncing people, making them feel guilty, while then he went to his lunch of pheasant and wine and forgot about it. He loved like few have ever loved. And that qualified the words that he says next when he says, dear children, I write this so that you will not sin. These are the words from a loving father. If you love someone, you don't want them to sin even if they want to. Your love for them makes you cry out, please don't do this, sin is always the wrong choice. This is where culture gets it so wrong. Love reinforces truth-telling. Love makes us bold to tell people to turn around. That's what biblical love is. It's what was displayed by John. If we loved as John loved, if we loved people instead of causes or political positions, we would love like John did. We'll follow his example in what we proclaim out of love. We will call people out of their sin. It's why, even though we may be hated for this, the church cannot, it must not make people feel comfortable in their sin. John will tell us in chapter three that Jesus came to destroy. The devil's work, sin, he said, is the devil's work. Jesus came to destroy that work. We can't go along with it. We can't make people feel comfortable with it. We can't make ourselves feel comfortable with it. Making them feel comfortable in their sin is the opposite of love. Jesus had the same attitude. That's why John, who spent so much time with Jesus, would have this approach. Remember what Jesus said that he pointed to these children and he says, if you cause one of these children to say, just one, it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into the sea. My wife and I were in Italy just a couple weeks ago. I have an Italian publisher. They brought us out nine years ago when they translated some of my books. I spoke at a conference in some churches and they've done some new ones, so we went out before we got to the churches and the conference, we, we spent some time and one of the places we spent time at was in Tuscany. And we toured this ancient mill that actually had millstones. Here's a picture of it. And I'm sorry for putting me in the picture, but I want to give you some perspective. This is how big these things are. These are gigantic. Jesus was probably pointing to something like this when he said that to the people. Causing one child to sin, it'd be better for you if you put a rope around your neck and, and the millstone and were thrown into the sea than that you would do that. That was Jesus's words. So if we facilitate our children's sin, wanting to keep a relationship with them, or we, we pretend it doesn't matter, or we swallow the truth, I hope will keep this picture in mind. Jesus would say, it's not love. It's not good for them. And John says this with the Father's heart, with someone who would die for those he served. But then he says this, it seems like he turns a corner. He says, if anyone does sin, my choice is I wish you wouldn't sin, but if anyone, does sin. Now, he could just say, when we sin, because we know from the first chapter, he just finishes. this, this is right before the verse we're looking at, he says in First John 1, 9, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. He's made it very clear. We all sin. But then there's some confusion because in chapter three, and Kurt has chapter three next week, he says this in chapter three, verse nine, No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. So how do we resolve this? He says, we lie if we say we don't have any sin. I don't want you to sin. And if you keep on sinning, you're obviously not of God. We know he's not contradicting himself. What's going on? This is a real letter that John is writing to real people. There was a heresy going on called Gnosticism, and I don't have time to get into the real intricacies, but it sort of had two sort of opposite reactions. One group, they would claim they didn't have any sin. They'd reached a level where there was no sin in them. Another group would admit, well, it may look sinful to you, but what really matters is the spirit, not what I do with my body, and so I'm okay. And John is categorically, forcefully rejecting both arguments. He's saying this, it is a lie to claim sinless perfection. None of us will attain that, but it is also a lie to continue in a sinful pattern of life and claim to be a Christian in good standing. I I know it can all sound so confusing, so let's, look at this, Spurgeon helps us understand that Christians and non-Christians alike both sin, but Christians sin differently than non-Christians. Let's look at some of those ways. First, he would say the Christian no longer loves or boasts about his sin. He doesn't defend it, he doesn't advocate it, he doesn't celebrate it. There are no parades or Facebook posts about what he's doing. He knows sin is a part of his life, but he doesn't want it to be, and he doesn't claim it as something that should be in other lives. The second, the Christian doesn't give way to sin with the fullness of deliberation. There could be times you, you see that in novels where somebody steals to feed their kids or tough year, you cheat on your taxes. Now we should repent of that, it doesn't excuse it. But that's different than a businessman who sets up a Ponzi scheme Cheating widows and retirees and whatnot for 30 years in a row, that's sitting with the deliberation. It's not a one-time act, you're, you're going on. Third Spurgeon says the Christian doesn't find enjoyment in her sin. Yeah, there's momentary pleasure, but it's like you live with a spiritual hangover. I can't believe I did that. The agony afterwards is is greater than any pleasure you might've achieved. And even while you're doing it, there's that check of the Holy Spirit. Why are you doing this? Why would you grieve my spirit? You can't fully enjoy this sin to begin with, and you will certainly pay a spiritual price afterwards. The fourth thing that Spurgeon says is that you don't make a habit out of your sin. You fall into them, but that's different than abiding in them. Read a really sorry account of a terrible thing in our neighborhood um, over the last week at a pool. Just a terrible racist tirade that was given in. I think one of the things that's most vile about racism is that it's a sin against God, first and foremost. How do you worship God the Creator when you're slamming who's he, who He's created? It's just, it's just terrible. But, you know, we all have these latent sins in us, we have pride. Most of us have envy, gossip, you tear people down. And so sometimes you might say something and you're just like, man, that's not who I wanna be. That's one thing. But a Christian doesn't join a hate group. A Christian doesn't have a Facebook page that systematically denigrates a different ethnic group than they are. They might fall into it and then be horrified and repent, but it doesn't become something that defines them. That is a story of their life. You see, in chapter two, when he says, "If anyone does sin," for the word sin he uses hamarte. That's in the aorist tense. It refers to one time. If you sin one time, in three nine, when he says, "Anyone who knows God doesn't keep on sinning," it's hamartanai, which is the present tense, an ongoing thing. So John's distinguishing between Christians who stumble with acts of sin and people who have given themselves over to sin, it's the policy of their life, it's the passion of their life, it's what brings them joy and happiness. And John says, no, those people don't know God. But while Christians may have a different relationship than non-Christians with sin, we still sin. It's still a part, it is our nature to sin. Even the sweetest and most pious Christians amongst us. When my kids were growing up, we had the best pet we could imagine, Amber. Uh, got a picture of her there. The question, if you have kids, do you want a pet while they're growing up? The answer is yes. If the question is what kind of pet, thousand times dogs over cats. If you want to have a happy life and teach your kids well, you always choose a dog. If you're looking for a dog, you're going to be hard-pressed to find a sweeter creature than golden retrievers. They're just amazing. She's perfect. And like Golden Retriever, she always loved to chase squirrels. We were in Bellingham, Washington, plenty of squirrels to chase. The kids always thought it was funny until the day Amber actually caught one. And <laughs> nobody was more surprised than Amber that she actually was just a shock. She finally got one. And then she did what dogs do. She started shaking and the kids are horrified. And I don't want little kids watching to be too terrified. The squirrel did run off. Eventually we got it, so I'm assuming it's okay. But, but our kids, she's the sweetest aunt. Why would she do that to the squirrel? Dad, why would, and I said, like, kids, it's her nature. She's a dog. It's what dogs do. In the same situation we find ourselves in as humans. Fire burns, mold spreads, humans sin. We have to admit it. That's the burden we bear. That's what we have to live with. It's the testimony of scripture itself. But there's a fifth thing that's different between Christians and non-Christians when it comes to sin. And these aren't Spurgeon's words. I don't think he would disagree, but I wanna put words in his mouth. I would say the fifth thing is that Christian's sins are worse than the sins of non-Christians. Our sins are worse than the sins of non-believers why would I say that? God has given us his Holy Spirit, the power to say no to sin. We, we know the words of scripture that warns us, this is sin, this is what will happen, this is the way of life, choose the way of life. We've received the affirming love of the Father so we don't have these empty, heart sick souls that are just crying out for relief. With all of that, it's like though the The sin of temptation is a dog nipping at everybody's heels, Christian and non-Christian alike. God has given us Christians a 12 gauge shotgun with unlimited ammunition. Sometimes we Christians don't pull the trigger. We sin because we want to, it's what makes it worse. We don't have to, we choose to, and we still do. That's why I wanna to say to the non-believers here, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, if you've heard it opposite, maybe you're watching online, maybe your friends have brought you, I'm sorry if you've always heard from the churches if we're better than you and we look down on you, the reality is when I sin, it's worse than your sin. I bring shame on the name of Christ. I have a way out, I just don't take it. But the hope for you is that if God will forgive my sins, if he will be an advocate for my sins that are worse than yours, He will be an advocate for you if you will trust him. Don't let, please don't let the judgment of Christians, the arrogance of believers keep you from the love and forgiveness and grace of God. Look to Jesus, the ultimate advocate. So we have this love hate relationship with sin as believers. We hate it and then give ourselves over to it. And that creates a certain kind of just misery. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter seven. What a wretched man I am. While there's so much joy in the Lord, while there's so much celebration in worship, every Christian has experienced this when we give in and say, why did I do that again? Paul says, who will rescue me from this body of death? Not me, I'm gonna try harder, I'm gonna get better, I'm gonna read more books. He says, no, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, we had to look somewhere else and that's exactly where John goes. When he says this, if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Now advocate here, it could be used as a lawyer, but Jesus is so much more than that. As a lawyer, he's got a 100% track record, he can't possibly lose. But it's not just that he argues our case, he gave himself, he knows his client is guilty. He knows that according to the law, we are condemned to death and hell. But John tells us not only is he our lawyer, but this, he's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He knows going in, we have no, we can't be argued out of it. But he says, but I can take her punishment. I will absorb the wrath that should be placed on him. I saw what she did, but she's mine. I'm her advocate and she goes free. Even when we're guilty, he stands up and this is why I look back to my childhood where I lived with such guilt and shame and I don't want you to live with that. Why did I live with that fear? Because I grew up with this. I don't know why. My thinking was, Jesus will be my advocate unless I sin. Jesus is in my corner until I do something stupid and he leaves me because I'm not worthy of him. But that's the opposite of what John says here. John does not say if you worship every day, he will be your advocate. He doesn't say if you read the Bible and pray every day, he will be your advocate. He doesn't say if you attend church, 50 times a year and give 10% of your income, you will convince Jesus to be your advocate. He doesn't say, if you can finally go one month or one year or three years without committing that one besetting sin you don't want anybody to know about, voila, then you have an advocate. Says, shocking. What, what qualifies us to have an advocate? When we sin, we have an advocate. That's the amazing message of the gospel. And not just an advocate, the best advocate in the world. Our advocate is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. It's perfect in every way for our needs. The the way that this title is, Jesus refers to his humanity. He was born, he was one of us. He was tempted in every way as we have been and yet was found without sin. Christ refers to the divine anointing and calling. He was called of God, not just man, but God. And this really qualifies him. He is the righteous one, not just wise, Righteous in Him was found no sin. Look, other religious leaders have some really wise sayings, some deep thoughts we could even learn from. None can claim to be the righteous one without sin. Jesus stands alone as the only advocate for us, which is what Christianity is about. Our hope is in a person. Lisa and I spent some time in Rome and we've been there before, but I just, I just, it doesn't get old to me going through all of these churches. Rome has 900 churches and about 700 Christians, so it's hard to fill them up, but that's a whole different story they're gonna have to deal with. But you go into church after church and there's Jesus in the front and Jesus and the altar to Jesus and Jesus everywhere you go. And then one afternoon we made reservations to go into what they used to call the Jewish slums where there's one of the largest synagogues In Europe, beautiful building, the only square dome in Rome, seats 850 people. And after days of walking into church after church and seeing Jesus front and center, I look at the altar of this beautiful synagogue and I see this. And I'll show you what's at the top. It's the 10 commandments. Hope isn't in a person. It's in the law. It's in obedience. Christianity says no, our hope is in a Savior. Not that we obeyed, that he obeyed. Just this morning, reading through Luke, the temptations of Jesus, so encouraged that I I am righteous, not because I can resist temptation, but because Jesus resisted temptation, all temptation 2000 years ago. So I bear his righteousness as my advocate. This is what's so crazy. My sin is worse than non-Christians. My righteousness is greater than the angels. The angels have their own righteousness. I and you wear the righteousness of Christ. There's no greater righteousness than that. And so we live with this amazing truth that yes, we are sinners, but when we trust in our advocate, we become righteous. And sitting in those worship services with Italian, unless it was the same tune, I didn't know what they were singing, but hearing hearing the word Jesu And I got up before I spoke at one service and I said, you know, whether you call him Jesu or we call him Jesus, there's no more beautiful name in all the world. He's everything. He's our hope. He is the perfect advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. I told you I would tell you what happened with the clock. So let me get to that before I let you go. Came out of that bathroom, terrified. Like I was going to execution, hoping, hoping, hoping God would heal that clock. And it hadn't moved. It was still broken. One of the longest hours of my life, just waiting for them to find out, waiting for me to get in trouble. And then my grandma walked by and she goes, oh, the clock stopped. I said, what, Grandma? The clock stopped? Hey, everybody, the clock stopped. Did anybody know who saw? Why did the clock stop? Boy, this is amazing. Grandma didn't freak out. She just pushed the cuckoo back in. She pushed a button on the front to reset the arms. And then apparently the, the weights had gone all the way to the bottom. You know, had to pull up the weights to, to run the clock. And she started up again. Grandma sort of became my advocate. (laughs) As a little boy, I had no clue. It was impossible for me to fix the clock. I wanted God to heal it. And so he brought someone wiser and stronger who could. We all have messed things up. We all need the advocate. When I was in college, we had the question and I don't like this now, but it was if you were in heaven and you see Saint Peter and he asks you, why should I let you in, what would you say? The reason I don't like it is that getting into heaven isn't a test. It's not just having the right answer, it's the force of your life, putting your trust in something. But if you want the answer, I'll, I'll give it to you. John gives it to us. If Peter questions me, I can't try to convince him I was better than most or I poured out this service or gave this money, it's Peter. I, I'm a sinner, but I have an advocate. I can imagine heaven leaning for. who's his advocate? Jesus, Christ, the righteous one, and all in heaven. we got another one. That's all he needs. Nothing else matters. That's where guilt and shame goes to die. So let's be honest, whether you're a Christian or not, you came in, there's a lot of garbage in your life. We were gone for a couple weeks in Italy. And so we had all of this trash and then we're moving into a new home. And so we have extra trash and trash is usually Tuesday, which was July 4th. And so it was waiting for Wednesday. So I've got all this trash piled up, waiting to put it in after it's emptied. So Wednesday morning, I'm in my home office and I hear the garbage truck coming up the street, beep. And I'm like a little boy, I jump out, I wanna see it happen in the way. Yeah, take it away, get it out of here. And it felt so light, the garbage was gone. We don't have to live with our spiritual garbage. We are sinners, but there is an advocate. Charles Spurgeon says this, I love this phrase, sinner is my name, sinner my nature but thanks be to him who came to save sinners. I am a sinner saved. (laughs) Can you say that this morning? You will need an advocate. I believe the day will come when you will be face to face with God and Jesus and have to give an account. We try to claim your own righteousness. Can I just say, he's got the tape. Jesus, I was pretty good. All right, Peter. July 29th, 2021. Play it. I was just a little, I had a little too much to drink or I was under a lot of pressure. It was a bad day. Your own advocacy will get you nowhere. John points us to someone that will get us everywhere into glory, to admit that we are sinners and to put our trust in the perfect advocate Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Let's read this again. My dear children, I write this so that you will not sin. He doesn't want us to use this as an excuse for sin. On the contrary, it should spur us to not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. It's a great verse to put to memory. If I'm tempted to sin, no, I write this so that you will not sin, because he loves me. But then if I do sin, instead of living with that shame and guilt, I have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Let's pray. Father, thank you. For in your word, helping us be honest that we're not above sin. We act like it sometimes. You know the truth. And we can be honest because there is a prescription. There is a remedy for our sin that you have provided through your son. Thank you for sending him. Jesus, thank you for taking our wrath on yourself. Thank you for setting us free. And Lord, if there's someone here or watching online who has not received this grace, pray you would pour your grace on them now so that they could respond to you in Jesus' name